If you're a guest, thanks so much for coming and checking us out at Southbridge. Today's a busy day. We've got a lot of things that are happening. The New Year's happening. I know lots of folks making new decisions to come back to church. We're glad that you're here. If today is one of your first times, if you'd fill out the connection cards in your worship program, uh, we'd appreciate that. Also, we have Discovering Southbridge today, which uh, means that I and some other leaders and, and folks that are plugged in our church are going to be hanging out in a room. They call it the party room here at the uh, the theater. I don't know. The party with the pastor, I guess we could call it, whatever. But uh, it's a glass room on the backside, like Carrie was saying in the announcements. We'll be in there. And if I've never met you, I'd just love to say hello to you and hear how in the world you hear about us as a church. And uh, thank you for coming here. If we can answer any questions for you or help you in any way, we want to be able to do that. And then also, I think you probably heard that the group expo is today. And so if you... You look in your uh, worship program, you'll see a handout, a bunch, bunch of different groups. At Southbridge, uh, we do what we call e-groups, which are three different types of groups. A lot of churches do small groups. We've got a, a unique approach to it in that we use each one of our values as the type of groups that we do. And we have encounter groups. If you look at the encounter groups this time, you'll see that uh, they're mostly gender-specific. There are three different women's studies that are starting. There's a, a men's group that's starting, and so you can check that out. Our embrace groups are what a lot of churches do is they're traditional, they'll call them life groups, small groups, community groups, whatever. Everybody's got to come up with a buzzword, right? We use uh, embrace as ours because we talk about embracing the one another's of Scripture. And you'll see there are several options for embrace groups. There's our first ever, I think, uh, men's only embrace group. And so if you're a man looking to get into a group with just other men, there's that option. I know a lot of times people bring up child care as an issue. There are a couple groups on here you'll notice that are offering child care, the Travis group and the Sprouse group, both are doing that. And then we also have an engage group. An engage group is a group that we use to try and engage our world for Jesus Christ. And so you'll see an opportunity for that. And that'll be at the end of the service. And so we'll end a little bit early today. So you can go out in the lobby, hang out with each other connect with one another, and then the people that are leading each one of these groups will be out there, and so you get to meet the actual leaders, and their tables will be labeled, and you can look according to whatever you're looking for, night of the week or specific type of group, and uh, you'll see all that in there. And so, and there's other stuff that's going on in our church. Um, like Carrie mentioned also, we've got our first ever app, church app. If you just go to Google Play or Amazon or iTunes or whatever and type in Southbridge or Southbridge Church or Southbridge Fellowship, it'll pop up. It does a lot of cool stuff. Um, you, can start, you can even check it out during uh, the message today. The latest sermons will be on there. So if you ever miss a message out of town, you'll be able to find that. The e-group study questions are there. So if you're sitting in an e-group one time and, and you're lost, <laughs> you can pull that up right there. Uh, you forget your Bible. There's actually a Bible that's in that app. And so you can use that and the events and stuff that are happening at our church will come to that. So everything will be one finger touch away from you being connected to what's going on at our church. And so check out the app for sure. And if you like it, give us a good review. If you don't like it, please don't tell them on there. Just email us and uh, we can make some changes and uh, we'll do that. But then also we're doing a, a new series today called Mark. And so... If you've already downloaded the app, pull up Mark on your app. Otherwise, maybe you can grab your Bible, and uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1 today. And we're going to cover the first eight verses of Mark chapter 1. And I'm going to ask uh, one of our missionaries, Sean Killian. Why don't you come on up here? Sean's a missionary. He's in town here from uh, Panama. Why don't you grab the mic that Margaret used? And uh, we just pray for us as we open up the, the scriptures this morning? Yeah, I would love to. Thank you. Cool. Morning, Southbridge. Morning. All right, let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we love you. We praise you this morning as we gather together and we focus on you. I just pray for your power and your fire to fill this place, Lord, that this is never a, an event we come to that we watch and we sit on the sidelines, Lord, but that we're active in pursuing your kingdom and that we take a personal interest in the people around us in this community, in this world. Give us passion, Lord. Give us blessings. Give us strength to follow you. Show us our unique gifts, Lord, that you have purposed for our lives to affect others, Lord. Allow us to leave here filled, focused on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. 
I don't know if you've ever thought about uh, preaching to, uh, I probably think about it more than the average person does, but isn't it, it's kind of a, a unique dynamic, isn't it? Like I'll speak and then the Holy Spirit will speak into each person's heart, a different message. It's, it's a unique thing and that we're all part of this, what's happening. And uh, thanks for that prayer. Uh, just a reminder of that, Sean, thinking of that. And uh, one of the things I was taught by a seminary professor was if you just studied the passage of scripture, you have not done your job. You've only done half your job. You've got to think through the people that are going to be hearing these words. And I've been thinking about where we're all at just this time of year naturally and uh, thinking about where our church is at. And I believe 2016 is going to be a great year for us. And I don't think that's just like wishful thinking as a pastor or hopeful things. I think it's going to be special. I've been looking back at some of the things that have happened. And you received an email update that told you we had more people than ever attended our Christmas Eve service. Um, but we had 21 people trust Christ at that. that. That's, yeah, we can give the Lord a hand for that. That's a really big deal. And uh, I think sometimes as a church, we can miss that because we see people trust Christ often in our church. But think about, so if you were here, you saw the lines of people that were out there to, to come into the service. And 21 of those people that were coming in entered without a relationship with God and exited with one. And then 21 people, we've got you know hundreds of people that will come to Southbridge. It's easy for 21 people to not come one week and you don't notice them. And if they come the next week, it's not like all of a sudden it's way more full. It's just 21 people. But I was thinking about when we started this church, we would gather in homes and, and just share the vision with people. And most places didn't have 21 people in it when we gather in a home. 21 people is enough people to start a whole church. And so what God could do even just with those folks, I realize some of them may not have been genuine decisions. Time and truth end in the same place. We'll, we'll, we'll know that over a period of time. Some of them were probably your relatives that visited from out of town. So now here's what I've just given you a, a tool to do, by the way. You can call any of your relatives that visit from out of town and say, hey, my pastor said 21 people trusted Christ. Were you one of those people? <laughs> and they might not be, but now you at least have started a conversation with them uh, at that point. But I had a guy come up to me in the, underneath the awning, and he said to me about uh, before this service, or not this, this one, but the Christmas Eve this year. And uh, he said, one of my relatives trusted Christ at the Christmas Eve service last year, and they're going to be here again this year, and they're going to be coming back. Because you never know what God's going to do. It might be your friend that's in New Hampshire, New Jersey, Florida, California, whatever, and uh, God's going to do work. And I don't know what it is, but I'm excited about what it's going to be. And some of you maybe made some decisions. We were doing our Dangerous Decisions series. I had a young lady email me this week and tell me she was actually frustrated with me for preaching the Dangerous Decisions series, which I laugh about. I think it's kind of fun that somebody's mad at me and I didn't even know what's going on. <laughs> and she's mad because God was having her make a dangerous decision. And God has some of you ready to make some decisions. Some of you maybe have made some New Year's resolutions type decisions. I was, I was reading this past week about some of those. And the popular, the most popular top two, number one is health. The majority of people make a health decision. Number two is God. Even people that are not going to church make decisions about, I want to get right with God. Or people that make decisions about, their, I want to lose weight. I'm going to be a better husband. I'm going to be a better you know, father. I'm going, to be, I'm going to do something. And what you see if you start to read through what people make decisions about is they're very general. And there are some general truths for us as Christians. You know, he who began a good work in you would be faithful to complete that work. We're all to make disciples. There are things that are true for all of us. But I want to challenge you today as we start the book of Mark that God has a unique plan for you. And so I want you to think beyond just, I want to get closer with God. I want to get right with God. I want to lose some weight. What does God specifically want to do in your unique story and your life? And we're going to see a very unique individual as we open up to Mark and Mark chapter 1. So if you have a copy of the scripture, go ahead and turn there. We're just going to cover eight verses today. And I think it's real interesting that, that Mark even starts this gospel the way that he does. 
But before we get to verse 1, I've got to get you to think in the mindset of some of the readers that would originally get Mark's gospel. And so we're in a very different world. Uh, America's an incredible country. We've got great freedoms. Most of you probably came in here today uh, maybe carrying your Bible or your app or whatever it was, and you're smiling and you're ready to come in. And w- You knew you were coming into a worship gathering, and you didn't care who out there knew that because of our freedoms. If you were out in public this week and uh, you wanted to pray for somebody, you want to pray for your meal at a, a restaurant, you could do that. No one's going to give you a hard time. Talk to your neighbors about Jesus. You don't have to worry. Somebody's going to come along and kill you. That's just the world that we live in. But I don't know if you watch the news. Uh, North Korea this week announced they successfully tested an H-bomb. They're not super big fans of Christianity, if you didn't know that. ISIS chopping people's heads off for being Christians in the Middle East. The whole Middle East is a mess. They've been torturing kids so that their parents would recant of their faith. And so I don't think it's a huge stretch in our imagination to imagine whichever other power. Maybe they raise up from the people that are within our country already. Maybe they come over here and they take over. But imagine somebody takes over that is not fond of Christianity. They outlaw Christianity. And how different your world would be. Instead of walking into here, we wouldn't be able to to gather with this many people together, by the way. You'd probably have to gather in a home and you'd have to sneak into that home for what the gathering was. Everybody couldn't show up at the same time. It'd have to be a couple people at a time until we slowly gathered together. And then think about what you'd share. About how maybe you hid your kids that week so that the people that hate Christians were coming around, you put them underneath the floor in your house or something. Telling stories about how you, you, you shared your faith because no one can stop you from sharing your faith, but they might kill you for doing it. But they, you, you have to tell, right? It's part of what it is to be a Christian. And so you're talking about how you're subtly sharing your faith with each other, and you're sharing these things with these people as you're meeting in this home. That's what it was like for the believers in Mark that are receiving this gospel. That's who he's writing to. It was around AD 65. Nero was king. I don't know if you've heard of Nero or not, but he's a king. It was a very interesting change in his kingship because over the first five years of his rulership, he was very peaceful and he was very calm, but something must have happened in his own life. We're not sure exactly what, but he became erratic and violent, and he hated Christians. I would argue, most historians probably wouldn't say this, it was probably demon possession. Something bad happened. He, at that time during his rulership, 80% of Rome burned down. Now think about that. We've had tragedies in cities, hurricanes, buildings going down because planes flew into them, but 80% of a city, we haven't seen that kind of devastation. 80% of Rome burns to the ground, and people thought that maybe Nero did it. And maybe he did. But he blamed it on the Christians, and he sent the military out after the Christians. And when he'd arrest the Christians, he was gruesome in the way that he would murder them. For some of them, he put animal skins on them and then sent them out into the streets, and they would send wild dogs, feral dogs, out into the streets. The dogs thought they were killing wild animals, but they were tearing the Christians apart. He would feed Christians to the lions at the Colosseum. He would burn them on stakes outside of in his backyard. He'd dip them in tar and then burn them to light his gardens for entertainment. And Mark's writing to people that are experiencing that, who want to know, God, what's your plan? Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. Mark writes, probably from his accounts that were given him by Peter, writes, the beginning of the gospel. It starts a lot like the book of Genesis, actually. In the beginning, God. And here it is, the beginning, the arche. It's a new beginning is what Mark is saying. God's created the world, but now it's a, here's a new beginning. And some of you could probably use a new beginning. He says, the beginning of the gospel, the good news, the euangelion about Jesus Christ, because he's the only one that can give a new beginning. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's what the whole book's about, by the way, just in that first verse. 
And what we're going to see in the passage we'll look at next week is that God declares from heaven. We asked the question for this section of the series, who is this Jesus? God declares from heaven, this is my son. Here it says, he's the son of God. Halfway through the gospel of Mark, what we're going to see is Jesus is going to say to Peter, who do people say that I am? You're the Christ. At the end of the gospel, what we're going to see is a centurion comes after Jesus dies. A pagan, Roman soldier, killed a bunch of people. Sees this guy die and says, this was the son of God. That's what Mark's all about. So we're done. Just kidding. Verse 2. It is written in Isaiah the prophet. And then we get a conglomeration of verses, actually. Some of this is from Malachi. Some of it is from Exodus. The last part is from Isaiah. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. And it's talking about John the Baptist. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. So he's pretty popular. What are they doing? Confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. That's significant. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Verse 7. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Verse 8. I baptize you with water. But he, he's different than me, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so here we have this guy. His life is to point people to Jesus. And that's how Mark decides to start his gospel, a gospel of action. And what you'll see if you start to study through this on your own specifically is that there's a key word. It's the word immediately. And what will happen is it just, it's from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. It's all pointing us to Jesus, which is the point of Mark, John's life, which is where Mark starts. But it's interesting that Mark doesn't give us the genealogy of Jesus, which we just studied when we did our Dangerous Decision series. He doesn't give us the, there was no room in the inn. He doesn't tell us about Jesus' parents. He doesn't tell us about John's parents. He just jumps right in here, and he's talking about John, and what we see about John right away is he's a unique man with a unique message on a unique mission. And the first thing we're going to see about our story today as we ask ourselves this question is that God always uses a unique person. God always uses a unique person. And you see how unique John is here. It's interesting to me how he describes John. He talks about what he eats and what he wears. Look at verse 6. If you have your Bibles, you can go back to verse 6. It says, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, there's a lot of stuff he could have said about John. This is not just like extra material. This is here for a reason. And so if you read Luke chapter 1, there's a ton about John. Mark doesn't tell us that John's dad is a priest. Mark doesn't tell us that John was miraculously born to a barren mother who happened to be related to Mary. Doesn't tell us that John was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. Doesn't tell us that John could have been a great basketball player. He was leaping in the womb. Doesn't tell us any of that information. And so you've got to ask yourself the question, if you read some of the other Gospels, why is that not here? You're going to start off with this guy, John, but you don't tell us any of his bio information, but instead you tell us this, verse 6, that he wore weird clothes, because I don't know what you think about first century clothing, but this was weird even then. He wore camel's hair clothes with a leather belt. I asked my wife this week, and I was serious, I said, should I dress like John the Baptist to preach the message? And she did that. (laughs) And then said, oh, dear Scott, no way. And I pretended like I was kidding at that point. Of course I was kidding. I mean, I'd never do that. And then it says here that he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, I bet a bunch of you are doing some weird diets right now. Sorry, probably weird. 
locust and hunting, that might come out. That might be, some of you may start this pretty soon. You probably make a lot of money. Grasshopper, I guess you could say. It's no carbs, by the way, locust and hunting. I don't know, de-winged, winged, legged, de-legged. I'm not sure how he ate these locusts. I don't know if there are a bunch of ways to prepare them, but it's disgusting what he's eating here. But there's a reason why we're told this. See, the Bible, there's a lot of things that could be said about Jesus, John tells us. There's lots of things that could be written in the Bible. Whatever's here is intentional. So why does he tell us this? And let me tell you, because everything about John's life was about his message that he preached. He lived the message. And so even his clothing, he, was call, he wasn't calling people to a prosperity gospel. He wasn't saying, come out here if you'd like to make some more money. He's showing these people, this is to come follow Jesus, which is who he's the forerunner for. That's why those prophetic verses are given in verses three and four, 2 and 3 here. He's saying, it's going to be sacrifice. It won't be your best life now. But you're doing it so it'll be your best life later. It's called a turn from what you would naturally go to and a turn to God. And so his clothes represent sacrifices. Food represents that. But here's a huge, huge observation. And look at all the verses. You know, I'm not just making this up. Look at everything. You read all of chapter 1 if you want. I don't mind if you start reading your Bible while I'm preaching to you. Look at it there. Never, never, never does John say, and you've got to wear these kind of clothes and you've got to eat this kind of food. John is a unique individual. It's following the general call. Jesus will preach a message of repentance as well. In Matthew chapter 4, we see the first thing that Jesus starts preaching as he starts his public ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. But then Jesus goes about his ministry in a different way that John goes about his ministry. Interesting. And then Jesus even points that out. No one's, you're not responding. It doesn't matter which method we use. You're not responding because your hearts are hard. But each one has a unique call. Just as you have a unique call, and you are a unique person. John was a unique person. It's as if John was comfortable with it because he doesn't do what many of us would do if we were dressing like John and we were eating like John. We'd say, well, everyone should dress like me, should eat like me, because we're preaching the same message, so therefore we should. Because that's what we do, isn't it? Just watch this year. And all the people, and hopefully you're not doing this already, but if you, start, you make some decision that's like now you're more committed to your Christian faith than ever, and you're going to stop watching TV, or stop eating gluten, <laughs> or stop watching sports, or quit social media, or whatever it is you're going to do. What people oftentimes, it's like human nature. What we do is then, then so should everyone else who's committed. Everyone else who's committed needs to now do what I'm doing because that's what committed Christians do. And I think for some of us, there's some genuine, it's like mixed motives. There's a genuineness in there that if it's a benefit to our life, we want other people to benefit from it. But then there's also this, we want affirmation. And if you decide to do what I've decided to do, then I feel better about me. And so if I stop watching sports, which I have not, by the way, so don't call me out and confront me on this, but let's just say I do something like I quit eating cauliflower, okay? So that's what all of us should do, right? And if you see me eat it, smack me. That's a bad decision. But if I think that it's spiritual, what I do all of a sudden is I start saying to everyone else, like, you should stop, do- you really should stop doing this. And what I'm doing is I also want affirmation for me. That's why we do that. It's an insecurity thing. And we do it with positive things as well. Because there's lots of good stuff that we can do, right, that, that would represent Jesus. So you can only do so many things. Everyone can't do everything. And so, you know, every, feed the poor. Everybody can't sign up for that engaged group that we're going to have. But it's a great thing to do. And if, God's got, if that's part of God's unique plan for you, you should do that. But everybody's not going to be able to fill in the blank with all the stuff that we do for the sake of the gospel. But instead of trying to get everybody to do the same thing, maybe it would be okay to say, this is an option, and there's other options, but the key is you've got to be doing it. How did God uniquely make you? Because you think about it, 
There's a lot of different people in our church. I'm just thinking through, as I was preparing this message, all the people that I talked to this week <laughs> and the variety of personalities and wirings and just the job differences. I've talked to, I talked to one, on the same day, I talked to a gentleman who was a contract worker for, and he had to travel for his job. I talked to a guy who was a lawyer and got to share Jesus with someone in a way that I never would be able to as a pastor. This little, the lady he was talking to me about, she'd never, she'd never come to me. Maybe she will now because of his ministry. Teachers, doctors, stay-at-home moms, entrepreneurs, people that work for small companies, people that work for big companies, people that are looking for a job with any company, all kinds of folks, college students preparing for their future, people that are retired looking back at a lot of the life that they've lived. All in our church, we've got NC State fans, UNC fans, Duke fans, ECU fans, Carolina Panthers fans, Cardinals fans, Washington Redskins fans, a couple Cowboys, you can't let too many in, and even Packer fans. We've got people who wonder how come anyone would spend any time on such a thing. And then we've got people that wonder how anyone could wonder how could anyone... Blah, 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 blah. We've got Republicans in our church, and don't tell the Republicans that we've got Democrats in our church. There is a diversity of people. Our worship pastor is a twin, has an identical twin. His twin is very different than him. They have 100% the same DNA, but not the same experiences, interests, likes, giftings, spiritual giftings. We're all unique. That's God's plan. His unique plan for you, and what we're told in the book of Acts is that he has the exact place, the exact time that you're going to walk on this earth. And so he knows exactly who your neighbor's going to be, who the coworker's going to be that's refining you for Jesus, who your one's going to be, who your spouse is going to be, who all, all those people, he's got exact time, exact place to put you, unique person. And he tells us all throughout scripture, back in Jeremiah, you hear oftentimes when we talk about the pro-life movement, talk about Jeremiah was known before he was in his mother's womb, so were you. Psalm 139, I quote all the time. I love it because it tells me how well God knows me and he still chooses to love me. It says in Psalm 139, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're told that we're God's workmanship. Right after he gives a big discourse on what it is to come to Jesus, to be without hope and without God, to be dead in our trespasses and sins, to be made alive in Christ. And he says, for you're God's workmanship. It's a Greek word, poema. It means a work of art. And it's, it's oftentimes used of a mosaic or a tapestry. You're putting all the pieces together. So he takes your experiences, takes the exact time he puts you here, all the things you know, all the things you don't know, which are also intentional, takes all of the, all of the people around you, all of the thing, your DNA, puts it all together, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That means they're unique good works, uniquely to you, which God prepared in advance. Before you were a twinkling in your mother's eye, God knew you, holy, and had a unique plan for you. General plan is that we'd all come to Christ. General plan is that we'd all make disciples. General plan is that we'd turn from sin and we'd turn to God. And you see specific sins that are mentioned. He's got a unique plan for each one of us because you're unique people, which is good news because God uses, always uses a unique person. And what we're being pointed to here is that this guy, John the Baptist, he was unique, but it's almost as if he was comfortable with his uniqueness. And never does he say, you've got to dress like me. Never does he say, you've got to eat like me. And he's got a unique message. It's unique because it's so countercultural. All of us have the same message. But it's unique because it's so different than every other religion and different than anything you're going to hear naturally in this culture or in ours. God always uses a unique message as well. Look at the message. First, it's mentioned up in verse 1 called the gospel. Now, the thing to point out about that is it's been 400 years since God's revealed himself to these people. This is the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. That's why he's used here. 
It's been 400 years since they've received a word from God. And I was thinking this week about Christmas, because we just came off of Christmas, and why it's so special, and there's lots of things. And we've got little kids at our house, and so the fun part for us is to see kids respond to the presents and the, just the day and the anticipation of it and all that. And there's lights, and there's you know preparing for a whole month, and there's lots of things that make it special. But I think one of the things that makes Christmas so special is it only happens once a year. Because if you did it every day, it wouldn't be as special. So once a year... You come out, it's somebody else's birthday, and we give you presents. How awesome is that? Feeds our self-centeredness, I guess. I don't know, but we do it at our house. And I was thinking about my one daughter. Her name's Ava. She's our second oldest. Everything that she opened this year, and every time we told her any bit of news, she screamed like crazy. So I was like, here's some Tic Tacs in your stocking. Ah, Mom, I love Tic Tacs! Woo! Woo! It's just awesome. That's once a year. And here are the messages. You haven't heard anything from God in 400 years? That's multiple generations have lived, died, lived, died, lived, died. And here's the good news. It's a unique message. What's the good news? Look at verse 4. John the Baptist came baptizing in the desert. That's significant. We'll talk about that in a minute. And preaching. What is he preaching? What is the message? A baptism of repentance. That's the good news. That's one of the reasons why this message is so unique. It is good news. It's the best news you could ever receive. But it confronts us in our sin. It tells us we're going the wrong way. His preaching here is not unique to John. They they were familiar with baptism. They knew about baptism before this. If you just look at the word baptism, it just means to dip, to dunk underwater. He's dunking people underwater. And what they would oftentimes do as Jews is they would baptize Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism. But it didn't just mean to dip or to dunk. Like any word, it's not just what you read in the definition in the dictionary at some point in time. It's how is it used in context. And that's why words sometimes change meanings because of how they're being used. And what you see throughout the Bible is that the use of this word had to do more with not just being dunked underwater, but it was an identification with a new way of life. And what you read in history, which you won't get in some of the Bible, some of the Gentiles that were converting to Judaism, what they were doing is they were renouncing their old relationships. They were renouncing their old allegiances to the false gods. They were renouncing all their defilement, and they were turning to the one God of Israel. And so Gentiles had to do this in order to become Jewish. But what you notice about John's baptism is it's not just for Gentiles. This is radical and highly offensive to Jews. Because he's saying, you're defiled too. Everyone has to be baptized, he's saying. It's not just because you were born into a family that that said they were a descendant of Abraham. It's not just because you had godly parents. It's not just because they circumcised you when you were a baby. You have to make a decision, he's saying. The decision is to turn from your sin and to get your hearts ready to be right with God. Because that's what repentance is, is to turn. If you just look at the word repentance, metanoieo, it's two parts in Greek. Noieo has to do with the mind. Meta has to do with changing. And so sometimes you'll hear Bible scholars say, well, it just means to change your mind. It doesn't just mean to change your mind. Because you read all throughout the scripture, you start saying, well, how's this used in context? What does it actually talk about in context? In context, it's actually a radical change of your life. That you were headed in one direction and you've decided to make a 180 degree turn and you're now going in a different direction. And God's now, as we sang in that song earlier, you will be my guide till the end. God's now guiding your life. That's part of his unique plan. You turn from you doing it, which is sin, to him doing it. That's repentance. And everything about John screams repentance, not just his clothes. It says he's out in the desert. The desert in the Bible is not just a geographical location. It has meaning, metaphorical meaning, symbolic meaning. It's in the desert, you see, that's where God speaks to prophets. It's in the desert that you see people being tested. 
It's in the desert you see the Jews being punished. It's their wilderness wanderings because they wouldn't believe. They wouldn't walk by faith. They wouldn't cross a body of water. It's interesting that he's baptizing them in the Jordan River, actually, because if you read your Bible, and you can go do this on your own, I don't have time to go to it today, but in Joshua chapter 3 and, and chapter 4, the Jordan River is actually the barrier. It's the border between the wandering in the wilderness and God's unique plan for his chosen people, the promised land. And so they're getting baptized in the Jordan, coming out of the water, just like their ancestors. They had to wander on the, the wilderness was a sign of their sin. It was a reminder of generations of rejecting God and thinking they could do it their own way. So being baptized in the Jordan was like the, the symbolic of the wall being torn down of sin this is what needs to happen in so many of our lives. And what are these people doing? Look at the text. We read it. It says, the whole Judean countryside, there's a bunch of people. And the people of Jerusalem, they went out to him. So these are Jews and Gentiles. There's soldiers. There's Pharisees and Sadducees we see in Matthew chapter 3 and Luke chapter 3 where we get more of John's message. And it says they're coming out and they're confessing their sins out loud. They're saying their sins. What do you think that was like? And you know what it is to confess your sin? To confess your sin is not just to admit that you did something. Hey, by the way, I lied, I stole, I cheated. That's not what it is. Confessing your sin is to see your sin the way that God sees it. So that's why this is such a unique message. Because most of us, when we acknowledge, well, none of us are perfect, we all have problems, but then we justify and we rationalize our sins. It's like my kid, I don't know if any parents can identify with this, but... I would just like my kids, when they get in trouble, to just say, yep, it was wrong, I shouldn't do it again, I'm sorry, what is the punishment? That never happens, by the way. You know what my kids do? And maybe this happens to you, maybe it doesn't, I don't know, your kids are probably perfect. My kids say, but dad, and then they want to tell me a story about why they disobeyed. But dad, here's the, if you just knew this, then I think that they genuinely believe. If I just heard their story, not only would I have compassion on them, but then I would agree with them. Oh, now I, I see why you did what you did. In fact, I think they actually believe if they could tell enough of their story that I would not only agree with them, I may even reward them for their disobedience. It makes so much sense why you did what you did now. I, I would have done the same. In fact, I don't even know if I would have thought to be so creative. And we do the same thing with God. Yeah, I'd do this, but then, you, don't, you know, if you just knew my circumstances, if you just knew the situation, if you just knew my DNA, if you just understood the people that are around me, if you knew all these... Confession means that you see your sin the way that God sees it, and he sees it as an offense to him. He sees it as the very thing that nailed his son Jesus to the cross. He sees your sin as why he had to pull out, pour out his wrath on his beloved son. So you'd have a way. Confessing our sin is that we acknowledge that while our union with God can never be broken because of our position in Christ, there's no condemnation because of our position in Christ, that practically our communion is broken when we sin. And we need to restore that relationship. And that's why we're told in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, if you confess, say the same thing about it, see it the same way that God does, our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us. He cleanses us. He's the one that does the work from all unrighteousness. And so I ask you this question. Do you think that our country needs to repent? you think we've got things that are a barrier between us and God? Do you think our church needs to repent? Certainly there, we could be closer, right? What about you individually? Are there things in your life you need to repent of? Because if you're not preaching a message of repentance, you know what you're preaching a message of? Self-sufficiency. There's only one person who didn't have to repent. His name was Jesus. 
So we all need this. It's unique, though, because no one wants to talk about sin, period. And if we do talk about sin, we're justifying or rationalizing it. It's a unique message by a unique person on a unique mission. And that's our third point. God always uses a unique mission. And we see that in the second part of what we're told about John's message. It says in in verses 7 and 8, and this was his message. Now, we already know the message was the gospel. And we already know the message was he was preaching a baptism of repentance. But then it says this in verse 7, and this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I. So he's a bigger deal than me. The thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I can't, I'm not even, he uses that word worthy. You may want to underline that word worthy. I'm not even worthy to do that. And that's interesting for the listeners then because they knew that this was a, a, a task that was so low that if you were a Hebrew slave, you weren't even allowed to do this. Only Gentile slaves could do this. This is like the lowest of the low tasks to untie your master's sandals. And he said, I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's sandals. And then he contrasts himself. He says, I baptize you with water. What I'm doing is symbolic. This water's not actually cleansing you from your sin. But he baptizes you by the Holy Spirit. That's not an external thing. That's an internal work that he does. He actually changes your heart. He can give you a desire to want different things. He's greater than I am. That's his mission. That's why it's a unique mission. Because your life's not about you. When you get healed from a disease, that's not about you. When God uses you in a significant way, that's not about you. When you go through a difficult circumstance, that's not about you either. It's about that, the works that he's prepared in advance for a unique individual place in a unique time that's ultimately to portray what he talked about in verse 1, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God that gives hope to everybody, like those 21 people that are coming into our church, everybody that's been without hope and then reconciled to God. He's ultimately doing that through you. He leaves you here on this earth so that he can do a work as he's working in you and completing the work he began in you. It's not about you. Which sounds kind of depressing. Like, my life's not even about me. Yeah, I think Rick Warren starts his book like that, The Purpose Driven Life. This is not about you. And then everybody buys it because they want to learn more about them. Because we're so self-centered. But what we don't realize is that we ultimately are going to find the very things that we desire when we walk in God's plan. He's the one who created us. He wove us together in our mother's womb when he was fearfully and wonderfully making us. So he knows what's best for us. And it's best for us if our life actually is about the one who's the star of the story named Jesus Easy for Mark to say here, because look at all these people are coming out from the Judean countryside. Everybody's coming to him. Everybody's so popular. What happens in his life is the same thing that happens with anybody that becomes popular. Some of you are popular in high school. Some of you are popular in your profession. Some of you have retired. Guess what? In two years, no one knows who you are. They forget. Popularity fades. That's what happens with John the Baptist. And we see some of it as he's on the decline of his popularity in John chapter 3. And some of his disciples come to him and say, hey, Everybody was coming to you, and everybody's going over to this Jesus guy. And he gives an analogy about being at a wedding, like he's the best man. And look at what he says. He says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. So the bridegroom's the big deal. The friend who attends the bridegroom, the best man, uh, waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it's now complete. Now that my popularity is fading, I have better joy now than I've ever had in my life, is what he's saying. And then he says, he must become greater, I must become less. He must increase, I must decrease, some of your translations say. So here's the point. It's not about me. That's the unique mission. And it's the mission that God has for every believer in Jesus Christ for 2016. And so I just ask you this question. How are you going to fulfill that mission this year? What's God going to do through you? What, do you what, needs, what decisions do you need to make today that will shape the rest of this year? 
For some of you, maybe you need to make a recommitment. Not, your life's not about you, and so that means a recommitment to maybe to your spouse because you've been making life about you, and some of your marriages are way worse than anyone here would ever guess. Maybe you need to recommit to your marriage vows that you're going to serve one another. Some of you might need to recommit to the Lord. You need to repent of some sin that you've been letting go and just think, well, no, he paid for it, and I'm done. And positionally, that's true, but practically, you're, you're walking out into the desert, basically. Why do that? He's got a unique plan for you to walk in that plan. And if you confess, he's quick. He'll cleanse you. Some of you need to recommit to the Lord. Some of you need to commit to the Lord. Some of you need to trust Jesus as your Savior. Some of you here need to recommit to, to church. And if this isn't your church, you need to find a church. We'd love to have you at this church. Some of you need to commit to groups. You can do that after the service in a moment. Some of you need to recommit to your one and reaching your one for Christ. And so you kind of maybe had one when we started that, and they're, they're kind of there nebulously, but you haven't been praying for them. You need to pray for them. Friends, share the gospel with them. Who knows what God might want to do through you and their life? And he put you in their life for a reason. So what does God want to do? It's not about you. Some of you need to repent. We're making it about you. But you are unique, and he has a unique plan for you with a unique message that he's given us, a message in jars of clay that we're supposed to be the light of the world. And so how will that happen in your life this year? Let's pray. Father, we come before you grateful that you loved us, not because you saw so much potential in us, not because we were awesome or gifted or had certain minds or physical abilities or any of that stuff but because you are gracious and because you are kind and we turn to you and we need you and some of us need to repent and i pray for those who need to repent and turn to you right now that, they, that we do that i pray for our country that we would repent the things that we call tolerance that are just an offense to you father i pray we'd repent i pray for our church that we would repent of anything we need to repent of. Even like Job says, even since we're not aware of, God, I pray that you would just turn us from those things and guide us to you. I pray for us individually, God, that you just burden our hearts and convict our hearts for sins we need to repent of. It would be right with you and ready for you to do what you want to do. And think about John the Baptist coming to prepare the way for the Messiah. And here we are, we're ready for him to come back. And we want to prepare the way. We want our friends to know. We want the world to know that you love us. I pray that we live that out as the unique individuals that you've made us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.